Chapter Seven, Part Two of Royal Highness by Thomas Mann, translated by A. Cecil Curtis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. It has been said that the Delphinenort Park was not divided from the town gardens. No walls separated the Schloss from the outer world. From the back, one could walk over the turf right up to the foot of the broad covered terrace which had been built on that site and, if bold enough, look through the big glass door straight into the high white-and-gold garden-room in which Mr. Spulmann and his family had five o'clock tea. Indeed, when summer came, tea was laid on the terrace outside, and Mr. and Miss Spulmann, the Countess, and Dr. Watercluse sat in basket-chairs of a new-fangled shape, and took their tea as if on a public platform for on Sunday, at any rate, there was never wanting a public to enjoy the spectacle at a respectful distance. They called each other's attention to the silver tea-kettle, which was heated by electricity, a quite novel idea, and to the wonderful liveries of the two footmen who handed the tea and cakes, white, high-buttoned, gold-laced coats with swans down on the collars, cuffs, and seams. They listened to the English-German conversation, and followed with open mouths every movement of the notable family on the terrace. Then they went round past the front door, in order to shout a few witticisms in the local dialect to the red-plush negro, which he answered with a dental grin. Klaus Heinrich saw Imma Spülmann for the first time on a bright winter's day at noon. That does not mean he had not already caught sight of her often at the theatre, in the street and in the town park, but that's quite a different thing. He saw her for the first time at this midday hour, in exciting circumstances. He had been giving free audiences in the Old Schloss till half-past eleven, and after they were finished had not returned at once to Schloss Hermitage, but had ordered his coachman to keep the carriage waiting in one of the courts, as he wished to smoke a cigarette with the guard's officers on duty. As he wore the uniform of that regiment, to which his personal aide-de-camp also belonged, he made an effort to maintain the semblance of some sort of camaraderie with the officers. He dined from time to time in their mess, and occasionally gave them half an hour of his company on guard, although he had a dim suspicion that he was rather a nuisance as he kept them from their cards and smoking-room stories. So there he stood, the convex silver star of the noble order of the Grimburg Griffin on his breast, his left hand planted well back on his hip, with Herr von Braunbart Schellendorf, who had given due notice of the visit in the officer's mess, which was situated on the ground floor of the Schloss, near the Albrechtsgate, engaged in a trivial conversation with two or three officers in the middle of the room, while a further group of officers chatted at the deep-set window. Owing to the warmth of the sun outside, the window stood open, and from the barracks along the Albrechtstrasse came the strains of the drum and fife band of the approaching relief guard. Twelve o'clock struck from the court chapel tower. The loud, Fall in! of the non-commissioned officer was heard outside, and the rattle of grenadiers standing to arms. The public collected on the square. The lieutenant on duty hastily buckled on his sword-belt, 
clapped his heels together in a salute to Klaus Heinrich, and went out. Then, suddenly, Lieutenant von Sturmhahn, who had been looking out of the window, cried with that rather poor imitation of familiarity which was proper to the relations between Klaus Heinrich and the officers, "'Great heavens, here's something for you to look at, Royal Highness. There goes Miss Spöhlmann, with her algebra under her arm.' Klaus Heinrich walked to the window. Miss Imma was walking by herself along the pavement. With both hands thrust into her big, flat muff, which was trimmed with pendant tails, she carried her notebook pressed to her side with her elbow. She was wearing a long coat of shiny black fox and a toque of the same fur on her dark, foreign-looking hair. She was obviously coming from Delphinenort and hurrying towards the university. She reached the main guard-house at the moment at which the relief guard marched up the gutter, over against the guard on duty, which, standing at attention in two ranks, occupied the pavement. She was absolutely compelled to go round, outside the band and the crowd of spectators. Indeed, if she wished to avoid the open square with its tram-lines, to make a fairly wide detour on the footpath running round it, or to wait for the end of the military ceremony. She showed no intention of doing either. She made as if to walk along the pavement in front of the Schloss, right down between the two ranks of soldiers. The sergeant with a harsh voice stepped forward quickly. "'Not this way!' he cried, and held the butt of his rifle in front of her. "'Not this way! Right about! Wait!' But Miss Spülmann fired up. "'What do you mean?' she cried. "'I'm in a hurry!' But her words were not so impressive as the expression of honest, passionate, irresistible anger with which they were uttered. How slight and lovely she was! The fair-haired soldiers round her towered head and shoulders above her. Her face was pale as wax at this moment. Her black eyebrows were knitted in a hard and expressive wrinkle, her nostrils distended, and her eyes, black with excitement and wide-opened, spoke so expressive and bewitching a language that no protest seemed possible. "'What do you mean?' she cried. "'I'm in a hurry!' And as she said it, she pushed the rifle-butt and the stupefied sergeant with it aside, and walked down between the lines, went straight on her way, and turned to the left into Universitätsstrasse, and vanished. "'I'm damned!' cried Lieutenant von Sturmham. "'That's one for us!' The officers at the window laughed. The spectators outside, too, were much amused, and not unsympathetic. Klaus Heinrich joined in the general hilarity. The changing of the guard proceeded with loud words of command and snatches of march-tunes. Klaus Heinrich returned to the Hermitage. He lunched all alone, went for a ride in the afternoon on his brown horse Florian, and spent the evening at a big party at Dr. Krippenreuter, the finance minister's house. He related to several people with great animation the episode of the guard, although the story had already gone round and become common property. Next day he had to go away, for he had been told by his brother to represent him at the inauguration of the new town hall in a neighboring town. For some reason or other, he went reluctantly. He disliked leaving the capital. He had a feeling that he was missing an important, pleasant, though rather disquieting opportunity, which imperatively demanded his presence, 
and yet his exalted calling must be more important. But while he sat serene and gorgeously dressed on his seat of honor in the town hall, and read his speech to the mayor, Klaus Heinrich's thoughts were not concentrated on the figure he presented to the eyes of the crowd, but rather were busied with this new and important topic. He also gave a passing thought to a person whose casual acquaintance he had made long years before, to Fräulein Unschlitt, the soap-boiler's daughter, a memory which had a certain connection with the importunate topic. Emma Spöllmann pushed the harsh-voiced sergeant aside in her anger, walked all alone, her algebra under her arm, down the ranks of the big, fair-haired grenadiers. How pearly white her face was against her black hair under her fur toque, and how her eyes spoke. There was nobody like her. Her father was rich, surfeited with riches, and had bought one of the Grand Ducal Schlosses. What was it that the courier had said about his undeserved reputation and the romantic isolation of his life? He was the object of the hatred of aggrieved rivals. That was the effect of the article. And her nostrils had distended with anger. There was nobody like her, nobody near or far. She was an exception. And suppose she had been at the citizens' ball on that occasion— he would then have had a companion, would not have made a fool of himself, and would not have ended the evening in despair. Down! Down! Down with him! Phew! Just think of how she looked as she walked, dark and pale and wonderful, down the ranks of fair-haired soldiers. These were the thoughts which occupied Klaus Heinrich during the next few days, just these three or four mental pictures— and the strange thing is that they were amply sufficient for him, and that he did not want any more. But all things considered, it seemed to him more than desirable that he should get another glimpse of the pearly white face soon, to-day if possible. In the evening he went to the court theatre, where the magic flute was being played, and when from his box he descried Miss Spurlmann next to Countess Löwenjul in the front of the circle, a tremor went right through him. During the opera he could watch her out of the darkness through his opera glasses, for the light from the stage fell on her. She laid her head on her small, ringless hand while she rested her bare arm on the velvet braid, and she did not look angry now. She wore a dress of glistening sea-green silk with a light scarf on which bright flowers were embroidered, and round her neck a long chain of sparkling diamonds. She really was not so small as she looked, Klaus Heinrich decided, when she stood up at the end of the act. No, the childish shape of her head and the narrowness of her shoulders accounted for her looking such a little thing. Her arms were well developed, and one could see that she played games and rode, but at the wrist her arm looked like a child's. When the passage came, He is a prince, he is more than that, Klaus Heinrich conceived the wish to have a talk with Dr. Überbein. Dr. Überbein called by chance the next day at the Hermitage in a black frock coat and white tie, as usual when he paid Klaus Heinrich a visit. Klaus Heinrich asked him whether he had already heard the story of the changing of the guard. Yes, answered Dr. Überbein several times, 
but would Klaus Heinrich like to relate it to him again? No, not if you know it, said Klaus Heinrich, disappointed. Then Dr. Überbein jumped to quite another topic. He began to talk about opera glasses, and remarked that opera glasses were a wonderful invention. They brought close what was unfortunately a long way off, did they not? They formed a bridge to a longed-for goal. What did Klaus Heinrich think? Klaus Heinrich was inclined to agree to a certain extent, and it seemed that yesterday evening, so people said, he had made a free use of this grand invention, said the doctor. Klaus Heinrich could not see the point of this remark. Then Dr. Überbein said, No, look here, Klaus Heinrich, that won't do. You are stared at, and little Imma is stared at, and that's enough. If you add to it by staring at little Imma, that's too much. You must see that, surely. Oh, dear, Dr. Überbein, I never thought of that. But in other cases you generally do think of that sort of thing. I've felt so funny for the last few days, said Klaus Heinrich. Dr. Überbein leaned back, pulled at his red beard near his throat, and nodded slowly with his head and neck. "'Really, have you?' he asked, and then went on nodding. Klaus Heinrich said, "'You can't think how reluctant I was to go the other day to the inauguration of the town hall, and tomorrow I have to superintend the swearing-in of the grenadier recruits, and then comes the chapter of the family order. I don't feel a bit in the mood for that.' I find no pleasure in doing my duty as the representative of my people. I have no inclination for my so-called lofty calling. I'm sorry to hear it, said Dr. Überbein sharply. Yes, I might have known that you would be angry, Dr. Überbein. Of course you'll call it sloppiness, and will read me a sermon about destiny and discipline, if I know you. But at the opera yesterday I thought of you at one point— and asked myself whether you were really so right in several particulars. "'Look here, Klaus Heinrich. Once already, if I'm not mistaken, I've dragged your royal highness out of the mud, so to speak.' "'That was quite different, Dr. Überbein. How I wish you could see that was absolutely different. That was at the Citizens' Ball, but it was years ago, and I don't feel a twinge in that direction, for she is—' Look, you, you have often explained to me what you understand by highness, and that it is something affecting, and something to be approached with tender sympathy. Don't you think that she of whom we are speaking, that she is affecting, and one must feel sympathy with her? Perhaps, said Dr. Eberbein, perhaps. You often said that one must not disavow exceptions, that to do so was sloppiness and slovenly and good nature. Don't you think that she, too, of whom we are speaking, is an exception? Dr. Überbein was silent. Then he said, suddenly and decidedly, And now I, if possible, am to help to make two exceptions into a rule? Thereupon he went out. He said that he must get back to his work, emphasizing the word work, and begged to leave to withdraw. He took his departure in a strangely ceremonious and unfatherly way. Klaus Heinrich did not see him for ten or twelve days. He asked him to lunch once, but Dr. Überbein begged to be excused, 
His work at the moment was too pressing. At last he came spontaneously. He was in high spirits and looked greener than ever. He blustered about this and that, and at last came to the subject of the Spulmanns, looking at the ceiling and pulling at his throat when he did so. To be quite fair, he said, there was a striking amount of sympathy felt with Samuel Spulmann. One could see all over the town how much beloved he was, chiefly, of course, as an object of taxation, but in other respects, too. There was simply a penchant for him, in every class, for his organ-playing, and his faded coat, and his kidney colic. Every errand-boy was proud of him, and if he were not so unapproachable and morose, he would already have been made to feel it. The ten thousand marks donation for the Dorothea Hospital had naturally made an excellent impression. His friend Samet had told him, Überbein, that with the help of this donation, far-reaching improvements had been undertaken in the hospital. And for the rest, it had just occurred to him. Little Imma was going to inspect the improvements tomorrow morning, Samet had told him. She had sent one of her swans-down flunkies and asked whether she would be welcome tomorrow. She and sick children were a devilish funny mixture, opined Überbein, but perhaps she might learn something. Tomorrow morning at eleven, if his memory did not mislead him. Then he talked about other things. On leaving, he added, The Grand Duke ought to take some interest in the Dorothea Hospital, Klaus Heinrich. It's expected of him. It's a blessed institution. In short, somebody ought to show the way, give signs of an interest in high quarters. No wish to intrude, and so good-bye. But he came back once more, and in his green face a flush had appeared under the eyes, which looked entirely out of place. If, he said deliberately, I ever caught you again with a soup tureen on your head, Klaus Heinrich, I should leave it there. Then he pressed his lips together and went out. Next morning, shortly before eleven, Klaus Heinrich walked with Herr von Braunbart Schellendorf, his aide-de-camp, from Schloss Hermitage, through the snow-covered Birch Avenue, over rough suburban streets between humble cottages, and stopped before the neat white house, over whose entrance Dorothea Children's Hospital was painted in broad black letters. His visit had been announced. The senior surgeon of the institution, in a frock-coat, with the Albrecht's cross of the third class, was awaiting him with two younger surgeons and the nursing staff in the hall. The prince and his companion were wearing helmets and fur coats. Klaus Heinrich said, This is the re this is the renewal of an old acquaintance, my dear doctor. You were present when I came into the world. You are also a friend of my tutor Überbein's. I am delighted to meet you. Dr. Samet, who had grown gray in his life of active philanthropy, bowed to one side, with one hand on his watch-chain and his elbows close to his ribs. He presented the two junior surgeons and the sister to the prince, and then said, I must explain to your royal highness that your royal highness's gracious visit coincides with another visit. Yes, we are expecting Miss Spulmann. Her father has done such a lot for our institution. We could not very well upset the arrangements. The sister will take Miss Spulmann round. 
Klaus Heinrich received the news of this rencontre without displeasure. He first expressed his opinion of the nurse's uniform, which he called becoming, and then his curiosity to inspect the philanthropic institution. The tour began. The sister and three nurses waited behind in the hall. All the walls in the building were whitewashed and washable. Yes, the water-taps were huge, they were meant to be worked with the elbows for reasons of cleanliness, and rinsing apparatus had been installed for washing the milk-bottles. One passed first through the reception-room, which was empty save for a couple of disused beds and the surgeon's bicycles. In the adjoining preparation-room there were, besides the writing-table and the stand with the students' white coats, a kind of folding-table with oilcloth cushions, an operating-table, a cupboard of provisions, and a trough-shaped perambulator. Klaus Heinrich paused at the provisions and asked for the recipes for the preparations to be explained to him. Dr. Samet thought to himself that if the whole tour was going to be made with such attention to details, a terrible lot of time would be wasted. Suddenly a noise was heard in the street. An automobile drove up, tooting, and stopped in front of the building. Cheers were heard distinctly in the preparation room, for all that it was only children that were shouting. Klaus Heinrich did not pay any particular attention to the incident. He was looking at a box of sugar of milk, which, by the way, had nothing striking about it. A visitor, apparently, he said, "'Oh, of course, you said somebody was coming. Let's go in.' The party proceeded to the kitchen, the milk kitchen, the big boiler-fitted room for the preparing of milk, the place where full milk, boiled milk, and buttermilk were kept. The daily rations were set on clean white tables in little bottles side by side. The place smelt sourish and sickly. Klaus Heinrich gave his undivided attention to this room also. He went so far as to taste the buttermilk and pronounced it excellent. How the children must thrive, he considered, on buttermilk like that. During this inspection the door opened, and Miss Spülmann entered between the sister and Countess Louvignol, followed by the three nurses. The coat, toque, and muff which she was wearing today were made of the costliest sable, and her muff was suspended on a golden chain set with colored stones. Her black hair showed a tendency to fall in smooth locks over her forehead. She took in the room at a glance. Her eyes were really most unbecomingly big for her little face. They dominated it like a cat's, save that they were black as anthracite and spoke a pleading language of their own. Countess Louvignol, with a feather hat and dressed neatly and not without distinction, as usual, smiled in a detached sort of way. "'The milk kitchen,' said the sister. "'This is where the milk is cooked for the children.' "'So one would have supposed,' answered Miss Spulmann. She said it quickly and lightly, with a pout of her lips and a little haughty wag of her head. Her voice was a double one, it consisted of a lower and a higher register, with a break in the middle. The sister was quite disconcerted. "'Yes,' she said, "'it's obvious,' and a little pained look of bewilderment was visible in her face. The position was a complicated one. Dr. Samet looked in Klaus Heinrich's face for orders, but as Klaus Heinrich was accustomed to do what was put before him according to prescribed forms, 
but not to grapple with novel and complex situations, no solution of the difficulty was forthcoming. Herr von Braunbart was on the point of intervening, and Miss Spoelmann on the other side was making ready to leave the milk kitchen, when the prince made a gesture with his right hand which established a connection between himself and the young girl. This was the signal for Dr. Sammet to advance towards Imma Spoelmann. Dr. Sammet, yes. He desired the honor of presenting Miss Spoelmann to His Royal Highness. Miss Spoelmann, Royal Highness, the daughter of Mr. Spoelmann, to whom this hospital is so much indebted. Klaus Heinrich clapped his heels together and held out his hand in its white gauntlet, and, laying her small brown-gloved hand in it, she gave him a horizontal handshake, English fashion, at the same time making a sort of shy curtsy without taking her big eyes off Klaus Heinrich's face. He could think of nothing more original to say than, "'So you too are paying a visit to the hospital, Miss Spoelmann?' And she answered as quickly as before, with a pout and a little haughty wag of her head, "'Nobody can deny that everything points in that direction.' Herr Braunbart involuntarily raised his hand. Dr. Sammet looked down at his watch-chain in silence, and a short snigger escaped through the nose of one of the young surgeons, which was hardly opportune. The little pained look of bewilderment now showed on Klaus Heinrich's face. He said, "'Of course, as you are here. So I shall be able to visit the institution in your company, Miss Spoelmann. Captain von Braunbart, my aide-de-camp,' he added quickly, recognizing that his remark laid him open to a similar answer to the last. She responded by, Countess Levignol. The Countess made a dignified bow, with an enigmatic smile, a side glance into the unknown, which had something seductive about it. When, however, she let her strangely evasive gaze again dwell on Klaus Heinrich, who stood before her in a composed and military attitude, the laugh vanished from her face, an expression of sadness settled on her features, and for a second a look of something like hatred for Klaus Heinrich shone in her slightly swollen gray eyes. It was only a passing look. Klaus Heinrich had no time to notice it, and forgot it immediately. The two young surgeons were presented to Emma Spoelmann, and then Klaus Heinrich suggested that they should continue the tour altogether. They went upstairs to the first story, Klaus Heinrich and Imma Spoelmann in front, conducted by Dr. Sammet, then Countess Louvignol and Herr von Braunbart, and the young surgeons in the rear. Yes, the older children were here, up to fourteen years of age. An ante-room with wash-basins divided the girls and the boys' rooms. In white bedsteads, with a name-plate at the head, and a frame at the foot enclosing the temperature and weight charts, tended by nurses in white caps, and surrounded by cleanliness and tidiness, lay the sick children, and coughs filled the room while Klaus Heinrich and Imma Spoelmann walked down between the rows. He walked at her left hand, out of courtesy, with the same smile as when he visited exhibitions or inspected veterans, gymnastic associations, or guards of honor. But every time he turned his head to the right, he found that Imma Spoelmann was watching him, he met her great black eyes, which were directed at him in a searching, questioning way. It was so peculiar. 
he never remembered experiencing anything so peculiar before her way of looking at him with her great eyes without any respect for him or any one else absolutely unembarrassed and free quite unconcerned whether anybody noticed it or not when dr sammet stopped at a bed to describe the case the little girls for instance whose broken white bandaged leg stuck straight out along the bed miss spoelmann listened attentively to him that was quite clear but while she listened she did not look at the speaker but her eyes rested in turn on klaus heinrich and the pinched quiet child who her hands folded on her breast gazed up at them from her back rest rested in turn on the prince and the little victim the history of whose case she shared with the prince as if she were watching klaus heinrich's sympathy or were trying to read in his face the effect of dr sammet's words or maybe for some other reason yes this was especially noticeable in the case of the boy with the bullet through his arm and the boy who had been picked out of the water two sad cases as dr sammet remarked a severed artery sister he said and showed them the double wound in the boy's upper arm the entry and exit of the revolver bullet the wound said dr sammet in an undertone to his guests turning his back to the bed the wound was caused by his own father this one was the lucky one the man shot his wife three of his children and himself with a revolver he made a bad shot at this boy klaus heinrich looked at the double wound what did the man do it for he asked hesitatingly and dr sammet answered in desperation royal highness it was shame and want which brought him to it yes he said no more just this commonplace just as in the case of the boy a ten-year-old who had been picked out of the water he's wheezing said dr sammet he's still got some water in his lung he was picked out of the river early this morning yes i may say that it is improbable that he fell into the water there are many indications to the contrary he had run away from home yes he stopped and klaus heinrich again felt miss spoelmann looking at him with her big black serious eyes with her glance which sought his own and seemed to challenge him insistently to ponder with her the sad cases to grasp the essential meaning of dr sammet's remarks to penetrate to the hideous truths which were incorporated and crystallized in these two little invalid frames a little girl wept bitterly when the steaming and hissing inhaler together with a scrapbook full of brightly colored pictures was planted at her bedside miss spoelmann bent over the little one it doesn't hurt she said not a tiny bit don't cry and as she straightened herself again she added quickly pursing up her lips i guess it's not so much the apparatus as the pictures she's crying at everybody laughed one of the young assistants picked up the scrapbook and laughed still louder when he looked at the pictures the party passed on to the laboratory klaus heinrich thought as he went how dry miss spoelmann's humor was i guess she had said and not so much she had seemed to find amusement not only in the pictures but also in the neat and incisive mode of expression she had used and that was indeed the very refinement of humor the laboratory was the biggest room in the building 
glasses, retorts, funnels, and chemicals stood on the tables, as well as specimens and spirits which Dr. Sammet explained to his guests in a few quiet words. A child had choked in a mysterious way. Here was his larynx with mushroom-like growths instead of the vocal cords. Yes. This, here in the glass, was a case of pernicious enlargement of the kidney in a child, and there were dislocated joints. Klaus Heinrich and Miss Spurlmann looked at everything. They looked together into the bottles which Dr. Sammet held up to the window, and their eyes looked thoughtful, while the same look of repulsion hovered around their mouths. They took turns, too, at the microscope, examined, with one eye placed to the lens, a malignant secretion, a piece of blue-stained tissue stuck on a slide, with tiny spots showing near the big patch. The spots were bacilli. Klaus Heinrich wanted Miss Spurlmann to take the first turn at the microscope, but she declined, knitting her brows and pouting, as much as to say, on no account whatever. So he took the precedence, for it seemed to him that it really did not matter who got the first look at such serious and fearful things as bacilli. And after that they were conducted up to the second story to the infants. They both laughed at the chorus of squalls which reached their ears while they were still on the stairs, and then they went with their party through the ward between the beds, bent side by side over the bald-headed little creatures, sleeping with closed fists, or screaming with all their might and showing their naked gums. They stopped their ears and laughed again. In a kind of oven, warmed to a moderate heat, lay a newborn baby and Dr. Sammet showed his distinguished guests a pauper baby with the gray look of a corpse and hideous big hands, the sign of a miscarriage. He lifted a squealing baby out of its cot, and it at once stopped screaming. With the touch of an expert he rested the limp head in the hollow of his hand and showed the little red creature blinking and twitching spasmodically to the two, Klaus Heinrich and Miss Spurlmann, who stood side by side and looked down at the infant. Klaus Heinrich stood watching with his heels together as Dr. Sammet lay the baby back in its cot, and when he turned round he met Miss Spurlmann's searching gaze, as he had expected. Finally they walked to one of the three windows of the ward and looked out over the squalid suburb, down into the street where, surrounded by children, the brown court carriage, and Emma's smart dark-red motor-car stood one behind the other. The Spulmann's chauffeur, shapeless in his fur coat, was leaning back in his seat with one hand on the steering-wheel of the powerful car, and watched by his companion, the footman in white, trying to start a conversation by the carriage in front with Klaus Heinrich's coachman. "'Our neighbors," said Dr. Sammet, holding back the white net curtain with one hand, "'are the parents of our patients.' Late in the evening the tipsy fathers roll shouting by. Yes. They stood and listened, but Dr. Sammet said nothing further about the fathers, and so they broke off, as they had now seen everything. The procession, with Klaus Heinrich and Emma at the head, proceeded down the staircase and found the nurses again assembled in the front hall. Leave was taken with compliments and clapping together of heels, curtsies, and bows. Klaus Heinrich, standing stiffly in front of Dr. Sammet, who listened to him with his head on one side and his hand on his watch-chain, expressed himself, in his wanted form of words, 
highly satisfied with what he had seen, while he felt that Imma Spurlmann's great eyes were resting upon him. He, with Herr von Braunbart, accompanied Miss Spurlmann to her car when the leave-taking from the surgeons and nurses was over. Klaus Heinrich and Miss Spurlmann, while they crossed the pavement between children and women with children in their arms, and for a short time by the broad step of the motor-car, exchanged the following remarks. "'It has been a great pleasure to meet you,' he said. She answered nothing to this, but pouted and wagged her head a little from side to side. "'It was an absorbing inspection,' he went on, "'a regular eye-opener.' She looked at him with her big black eyes, then said quickly and lightly in her broken voice, "'Yes, to a certain extent.' He ventured on the question, "'I hope you are pleased with Schloss Delfinenort?' To which she answered with a pout, "'Oh, why not? It's quite a convenient house.' "'Do you like being there better than at New York?' he asked. And she answered, "'Just as much. Much the same. Much the same everywhere.' That was all. Klaus Heinrich, and one pace behind him, Herr von Braunbart, stood with their hands to their helmets as the chauffeur slipped his gear in, and the motor-car shivered and started. It may be imagined that this meeting did not long remain the private property of Dorothea Hospital. On the contrary, it was the general topic of conversation before the day was out. The courier published, under a sentimental poetical heading, a detailed description of the rencontre, which, without too violent a departure from the exact truth, yet succeeded in making such a powerful impression on the public mind and evoked symptoms of such lively interest that the vigilant newspaper was induced to keep a watchful eye for the future on any further rapprochement between the Spoelmann and Grimburg houses. It could not report much. It remarked a couple of times that His Royal Highness Prince Klaus Heinrich, when walking through the promenade after a performance at the court theatre, had stopped for a moment at the Spoelmann's box to greet the ladies and in its report of the fancy-dress charity bazaar, which took place in the middle of January in the town hall, a smart function in which Miss Spulmann, at the urgent request of the committee, acted as seller, no small space was devoted to describing how Prince Klaus Heinrich, when the court was making a round of the bazaar, had stopped before Miss Spulmann's stall, how he had bought a piece or two of fancy glass, for Miss Spulmann was selling porcelain and glass, and had lingered a good eight or ten minutes at her stall. It said nothing about the topic of conversation, and yet it had not been without importance. The court, with the exception of Albrecht, had appeared in the town hall about noon, when Klaus Heinrich, with his newly bought pieces of glass and tissue paper on his knee, drove back to the Hermitage, he had announced his intention of visiting Delphinenort and inspecting the Schloss in its renovated state, on the same occasion viewing Mr. Spulmann's collection of glass. For three or four old pieces of glass had been included in Miss Spulmann's stock, which her father himself had given to the bazaar out of his collection, and one of them Klaus Heinrich had bought. He saw himself again in a semicircle of people, stared at, alone, in front of Miss Spurlmann, and separated from her by the stall-counter, with its vases, jugs, its white and coloured groups of porcelain. 
he saw her in her red fancy dress, which, made in one piece, clung close to her neat, though childish figure, while it exposed dark shoulders and arms, which were round and firm, and yet like those of a child just by the wrist. He saw the gold ornament, half garland and half diadem, in the jet of her billowy hair, that showed a tendency to fall in smooth wisps on her forehead, her big, black, inquiring eyes in the pearly white face, her full and tender mouth, pouting with habitual scorn when she spoke, and round about her in the great vaulted hall had been the scent of furs, and a babble of noise, music, the clash of gongs, laughter, and the cries of sellers. He had admired the piece of glass, the fine old beaker with its ornament of silver foliage, which she proffered to him, and she had said that it came from her father's collection. Has your father, then, got many fine pieces like this? Of course. And, presumably, her father had not given the best items to the bazaar. She could guarantee that he had much finer pieces of glass. Klaus Heinrich would very much like to see them. Well, that might easily be managed, Miss Spillemann had answered in her broken voice, while she pouted and wagged her head slightly from side to side. Her father, she meant, would certainly have no objection to showing the fruits of his zeal as a collector to one more of a long succession of intelligent visitors. The Spillmanns were always home at tea-time. She had gone straight to the point, taking the hint for a definite offer, and speaking in an entirely off-hand way. In conclusion to Klaus Heinrich's question, what day would suit best, she had answered, "'Whichever you like, Prince, we shall be inexpressibly delighted.' "'We shall be inexpressibly delighted.' Those were her words, so mocking and pointed in the exaggeration that they almost hurt, and were difficult to listen to without wincing. How she had rattled and hurt the poor sister in the hospital the other day! But all through there was something childish in her manner of speech. Indeed, some sounds she made were just like those children make, not only on the occasion when she was comforting the little girl about the inhaler, and how large her eyes had seemed when they told her about the children's fathers and the rest of the sad story. End of section 14